Well, good morning. My name is Nate Aiken. You get a chance to serve here some by preaching the word. And if you have a copy of God's word, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10. So turn there. Um, often Pastor Dwayne is happy to give me uh, difficult texts as he's away uh, out of the country enjoying soccer matches and so forth. And so he gave me a text that at least is PG-13, if not R-rated. Uh, and so we're going to work our way through that. He's actually visiting mission partners and uh, doing work there. And so uh, we had a chance to work through this text, but it is a tough text to understand. In our world, uh, even some so-called preachers have used this passage to write books that are full of error. But if we can recognize what's going on here, we will see in a fallen world, in a tough world, and in a broken world, that this text is glorious. And it speaks to us of something we must come to know, something that we must let shape who we are. In this text, we're going to see by way of narrative that we have real enemies, enemies within our own sin and enemies without who plot against us in a fallen world. It's true. We don't have to look far. We don't have to read too many headlines. We don't have to think about what's going on in the world to see that there are enemies. It's vitally important for us to remember when we come to the Bible, when we come to places like Joshua, we are coming to real stories, spirit-inspired accounts. These are real happenings. They are not cartoons. They are not fables. Yet through it all, we're going to see the promises of God for his people. In the background of this text, and actually over top of all of this text, are the promises from Genesis 12 and the promises from Genesis 15 that God has made to the patriarch Abraham. We're told in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then in Genesis 15, 13 through 16, the Lord says to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's where we're at this morning in God's redemptive plan. The iniquity of the Amorites is now complete. And we're going to see the Amorite kings take their stand against God's man and take their stand against God's people. Leviticus 18 talks about their sin. It talks about their iniquity, how they have defiled the land by their idolatry, by their, their just repulsive sexually immoral practices and their sacrificing of their children to Molech. And yet God promises ring true. He will protect his own. He will even bless the nations that bless his people. And he will do so, we will see this morning, through a mediator who is also a warrior. But I want to turn our attention to the word this morning. And I, as we do, I want us to remember that we who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham have real enemies in this fallen world. And that these things have been written down for us so that we will understand how we should look at and view the world in a world that is broken. So as you hear the words in a minute, I want you to realize that God is patient. He waits 400 years to deal with the Amorites. He is patient and long-suffering. He is slow to anger, but he will in no way excuse the guilty. The time comes when he will be moved with wrath towards their idolatry and their sexual immorality and their child sacrifice. As we read these words in just a minute, because it's a serious text, 
As we read these words, I want us to think through what God is saying he will do on our behalf for our spiritual enemies. So let's read the text, and then we're going to ask for God's help as we work our way through. I'm going to read an extended portion, about 27 verses, so we can set the stage. And the author writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted to destruction, doing to Ai and its king what he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, and moved down, gathered their forces, and went up with all their armies, and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came, uh, came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the scent of Betharon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Betharon, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. The moon stopped until the nation took vengeance upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, these five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and send men by it to guard it. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open up the mouth of the cave, bring those five kings out to me. And they did so. They brought the five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. They came near, they put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, 
Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. At that time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. Let's pray. Father, I certainly know, as I come to preach your word, Father, that you entrust this treasure to jars of clay. So, Father, would you help me now? Father, we desire your glory, so we need your help. Father, I pray that we will understand the power of what we've just sung together, that the battle has already been won. So, Father, would you help us now to think upon your word? Father, we know your word is able to make us wise in the salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any here who do not know him, Father, I pray that you would do that. And it's also able to train and instruct us in righteousness. Father, for the believers in this room, would you do just that? Father, would you let the word speed ahead? Do you now sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all all know that I like queso, but what you don't know is that I grew up a WWF wrestling fan. You've been told that confession is good for the soul, and that's my confession. I grew up with three brothers, so we, we liked the wrestling, and we also loved these sort of stories in the Bible, right? We loved the story of Samson and David and Goliath, and on and on and on I could go. We, we loved those stories. We were much less uh, concerned about stories like Isaac trying to find a wife for some reason. That means as we grew up wondering, like loving wrestling and looking at these Bible stories, we grew up wondering things like, what would happen if Samson fought Goliath? What would happen if Joshua went to -to hand-to-hand combat with the Pharaoh? If we had ever been given toy action figures of these characters, like we were given toy action figures of Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, we would have pitted them against one another. And with this boyish imagination, we would have thought, who would win this fight? Years ago now, I was alerted to an article by a pastor about manufacturers who are capitalizing on that very sort of imagination by producing little Bible action figures like Samson and Goliath and Joshua and David with Jesus expected to be the runaway bestseller. In this article, one of the things that's posed to the toy maker was, what happens if these toys get mixed in with the other toys? What do you have if a child pits Spider-Man against Jesus in a showdown? Something I know little boys will do. And the maker said this, I would hope that the parents in that situation would step in and keep Jesus in a safe place. To this, the pastor lamented, the world emperor of Revelation 19, the sovereign of all creation having to be protected by parents from leftover He-Man action figures. Think about the irony of that statement. I'm afraid if if you're like me, particularly if you've grown up in the church, where you've grown up watching Hanna-Barbera cartoons and seeing flannel graphs in Vacation Bible School, and now we have vegetable cartoons that portray biblical characters. Not that any of those things in and of themselves are wrong, but when we see the Bible through those things, we can miss the reality of what is going on in the Scriptures. It can certainly make us miss the seriousness of what's going on in a story like this one. I mean, we don't have to look far to see that we do not live in a fairy tale tale world. 
This ain't Disney. Sadly, Disney ain't Disney anymore. But we live in a real world, a fallen world, with real enemies that seek to enslave us and to destroy us. Some of those enemies are internal, enemies of sin, right? Appetites of lust and greed and selfishness and foolishness and anger and obsession with the approval of others. But we also have external enemies because we live in a fallen world under the curse. Things like sickness and disease and conflict. And the Bible is very clear that we face principalities and powers who would like to sift us like we. And I'm afraid if we view biblical truth through the lens of cartoons or figurines, we will miss what exactly is going on in Joshua chapter 10. We will miss just how serious the war is, but more than that, we will not fully understand what it means that God fights for us and he does so through a mediator who is also a warrior who has come to defeat our enemies. And that's my main idea this morning. The Lord fights for his people and he does so through a mediator who is a warrior. Now, here's the context. Joshua and God's chosen people, Israel, they are continuing the conquest of the promised land. They have been told to rid the land of sin and idolatry. And we have already seen major cities like Ai and Jericho have been taken. And we've also seen, though, not just their obedience in taking those cities. We've also seen their disobedience with the sin of people like Achan. No relation, by the way. And then in chapter 9, we don't have time to fully get into it, but the Gibeonites who rightly fear Israel, they make a treaty with them. And where we've come to in the text is that now Israel will act decisively in order to honor that treaty. But more than that, the Lord himself will act decisively to keep it, which leads to the first part of the text. And we see the plot against Israel. Look again at verse 1. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted to destruction, doing to Ai and his kings as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all of its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Reports come and to this man, ironically, who is the king of Jerusalem. Adonizedek is his name. And he hears that Israel is laying waste to the land. They have, they have sacked Ai. They have sacked Jericho. And now they have made a treaty with this impressive city known as Gibeon. And so Adonizedek is scared. It says here he fears greatly. He knows that Israel poses both a threat to his own person as well as his possessions. And ironically, the king of Jerusalem will rally an evil access of Amorite kings to come up against Gibeon and ultimately against Israel herself. This is the first time in the Bible that the word Jerusalem shows up. It has shown up, the city has shown up by a different name. In Genesis 14, 18, it is known as Salem, but now it's known as Jerusalem. And interestingly, there in Genesis 14, there is a king of Salem who has a similar name. His name is Melchizedek, or which means king of righteousness, but now the new king, Adonizedek, meaning lord of righteousness. 
And the Lord is trying to show us, the author is trying to show us by way of contrast what it means that the iniquity of the Amorites is now complete. Because there once reigned in Jerusalem a true ruler of righteousness who blessed Abraham, and yet now there is a false ruler of righteousness who seeks to do Abraham's descendants harm. And this defection of Gibeon to Israel's side causes great fear, and for good reason. Gibeon is an impressive city. It's a large city. It's larger than Bethlehem Ai. It's closer to Jerusalem. It's a royal city because it means it has a king. It's famous for all of its men being known for being courageous in battle, and yet they still readily and easily bow the knee to Israel. And so Adonizedek is fearful. Adonizedek, instead of taking the route of Rahab, who turned to Israel's God Yahweh by faith, and instead of going the route of Gibeon by seeking a peace treaty with Israel, instead of realizing that those who bless Abraham's descendants will be blessed, Instead, Adonizedek plots against them. Instead of joining with Israel and their God, he seeks to do them harm. He seeks also to harm their allies. Here's his calculation. It is better for us to deal with Gibeon so that we can then take that city in order to buttress ourselves up against Israel. And so Addy calls, if you will, a meeting of the five families to hatch a plot and plan and now to set off and set themselves up against Gibeon. We see something here that will be talked about later in the Psalms. It'll be talked about in Psalm chapter 2. David will write this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But then just one verse after that, it says this. But he who sits in the heaven laughs. Take a moment to realize how significant it is that these five kings fear. It is a demonstration of just how powerful our God is. Israel at this point is not some sort of mighty kingdom. No, they are a ragtag group of slaves who have just survived 40 years in the wilderness. And more than that, it's now five against one. And yet they are a formidable foe. They are a formidable foe, not because of who they are in and of themselves. They are formidable because Yahweh is on their side. It's something that must be thought about us deep in the aspects of who we are this morning as we think about the world that we live in. We need to understand that when it comes to our spiritual warfare in the heavenlies, evil powers plot against us. And yet as they plot against us, our God laughs. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Well, it leads very clearly to the second part of the text, and we see the power of the Lord. Look what it says. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor, And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, chased them by the way of the scent of Beth and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Listen to this. There were more who died because of the hailstones, and the sons of Israel killed with the sword. 
These verses have a fascinating play on words. There's this, this urgent appeal. It comes in the form of an emphatic imperative where Gibeon is saying, hey, come save us, or it can even be better, like stronger. You must come save us. It's an appeal to them to, to come and, and keep your treaty with us. And it's interesting. The appeal comes to a man. They need saving. The appeal comes to a man whose name literally means the Lord saves. Yeshua, Yahweh saves Joshua. And the verb uses in verse six for the Gibeon saying, help us is connected to the verb uses in verse four, where Adonai is telling the other four kings, help me. It highlights the iniquity of the Amorites. It contrasts the intents of the two. Israel is, is intending to come and save Gibeon while Adonai and the other kings are hoping to do them harm. So Gibeon says to Israel, basically something like this, hey, bro, you remember that pact we made? It's time for you to make good on it. They know they cannot withstand the onslaught of these five, the onslaught of these five kings. And they, so they call for a formidable ally to come help them in the fight. And this is wise, right? It's wise for us to try to find a stronger ally when we go to war. I think I've told this story before, but years ago, I was a teenager at a Carolina Mudcats game. And there were these uh, drunk guys who were screaming at us, yelling at us for not doing the wave. They were being quite belligerent. We thought something was about to go down tensions were rising. But as soon as I started to fear, I remembered sitting right next to me was my uncle who was a former undercover cop who could bench press 500 pounds. And as soon as I tapped him on the shoulder and he stood up, they sat down. If we are wise, we do this in combat, right? We get a formidable ally to help us in the fight. And thankfully, brothers and sisters, this morning, if we have made peace with God through the gospel, the right man is on our side. In fact, Yahweh is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us in battle. Joshua acts here in accord with the treaty immediately. Notice the urgency of what he does to keep his word. It says he marches up all night in order to keep his word. He hurries to help Gibeon. He comes to take on the Amorites. And on his way, the Lord again, for at least the third time in the book, reassures, reassures him, do not fear. God reminds them of his power, his presence, and his promises and says, I have given them into your hand. In fact, in the text, God speaks in the past tense. He tells them how he will deal with this Jerusalem coalition. He says, I have already determined the outcome. So Joshua attacks early in the morning. Perhaps the moon is still up in the sky. But in keeping with his promise of the outcome, it is the Lord who is the subject of all of the verbs in verse 10. He throws the enemy into a panic. He strikes them with a great blow. He chases them down. He strikes them as far as Makeda. It is the Lord's doing. He is the decisive actor. Moses has already told us in Exodus in a song that he wrote for Israel a generation ago that the Lord is a man of war and notice his weapons. In one sense, the Lord brings rocks to a sword fight. And yet these aren't pebbles. His artillery is large hailstones from heaven that rain down on the enemy as now the divine warrior decimates the Jerusalem five. We see something vital here for our own spiritual warfare. Yes, Israel will still need to obey. Israel will need to fight. They have hard work to do, and so do we. But Israel, along with us, we fight from victory, not for victory, because the outcome has already been determined. Which leads to the third part of the text, and we see the prayer of the mediator warrior. Verse 12, these are fascinating verses. 
At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. These are staggering events that you're happening at the exact same time as the previous verses. This is, this is all happening in, in parallel scenes. And it's an astounding miracle of cosmic proportions. Essentially, the sun stays up in the sky for twice as long as it normally would so that the enemy would be illuminated for Israel to exact their vengeance on them. Some obviously do not believe in the supernatural. Some even so-called Christian scholars go to great lengths to try to explain away what's taking place in this text. People want to deny the supernatural. But brothers and sisters, if we understand and believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then this is not impossible. He made the laws of nature so he can, at his own whim, temporarily suspend them. If we understand other parts of the Bible, this will not be so confusing for us. If he upholds the world by the word of his power, and even more than that, brothers and sisters, if he raises the dead, and the one who made science can make science do as he desires. This far from disproving the Bible highlights its own honesty and factuality. In fact, the author references for the current readers in this scene, he says, if you don't believe me, check out the book of Jashar. It talks about this same day. He's basically saying, don't take my word for it. Check out that book. We don't know much about that book. It's a non-canonical book. It's mentioned also in 2 Samuel. The, the, the word Jashar kind of gives this idea that it was probably a poetic telling of these stories of the heroes of Israel, such as men like Joshua. And yet, verse 14 is fascinating. When the dust settles, what is astounding is not that God has acted by throwing bowling balls of stone out of heaven on the enemy. Notice that he's done so based upon the appeal and the interceding of a man. Flesh and blood has made him do this. This isn't some fake illusion. This is not David Blaine making you think he's levitating off the ground. This is not David Copperfield making a jet plane disappear. And the text marvels at this. It says up to this point, and at the time of this writing, there has been no day like it. Where at the voice of a man, the entire solar system stops. Previous miracles have obviously happened, happened like the stopping of the waters at the Jordan, victory at Jericho. But those miracles had happened at God's own divine initiative. This time, however, the tide turns and it all happens because of the intercession of this one man on behalf of his people. For God hears and acts based upon the voice of his mediator. Which leads to the final part of the text and we see the plight of the enemy Here's what it says, verse 17. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men there to guard it. 
but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. The kings flee from the battle. Again, they, they are unimpressive kings. They are not on the front line fighting. They are at the back and they flee and Joshua has the men imprison them in these caves that they have gone to seeking for refuge. But Joshua here emphatically commands his troops not to stop. There's, there's a play on word in the Hebrews here. He basically says this, in contrast to the sun and moon, which is standing still, you don't stand still. Pursue them. Just as the sun cannot go down to its resting place, do not let the enemy get to its resting place. Do not let them get to their cities. And so the men of Israel pursue the enemy and now it uses the exact same language of them that it had used in previous verses of God himself. Now the men of Israel strike them with a great blow until they are wiped out. Israel's victory is so decisive, they return to the camp in complete peace and the victory is so total that literally nobody from this evil access dares say a word now. The text could literally read something like this. No one sharpened his tongue against Israel. It's actually similar language that's used in Exodus 11 when it's on the night before the Passover when the death angel is going to strike. It says this, not even a dog will sharpen its tongue against Israel. This is how safe it is. Not even a dog would bark at them. A cat maybe, but not a dog. But let's see the end. Let's see the fate of these five kings. These are serious verses. As we read them, I want you to consider what the Lord plans to do to Satan and his unholy allies. Verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. They brought the five kings out from the cave, king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jermuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, jo Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and they put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death and hanged them on the five trees. And they hung up on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and they threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. Joshua now deals with those who have plotted against him, those who have attacked his ally, those who would seek to do him harm, those who would seek to come up against him and kill him. It's a fascinating scene, right? He brings them out and he gets the, chief of the, uh, the chiefs of the men of war to put their feet on the necks of these kings. Now, this is an intentional act. This was a common practice in the ancient Near East. It was an intentional act that symbolized the final victory but brothers and sisters, those of us who know the Bible should understand exactly what's happening here that will be talked about later in the scriptures. 
he is making even their enemies a footstool. Yet there's more going on, has echoes of Genesis 3.15. One day, in this broken world, under the curse, someday God is going to send somebody born from Eve who will crush the serpent's head. And this is just a picture, small picture, of Genesis 3.15, partial fulfillment, something that will be fulfilled much later. And in the midst of this act, Joshua gives those, these men the same exact reminder that he has been given from God. He gives them the same assurance that God had given him as he went into battle. He says, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all of your enemies. And this final act is told with just a certain directness. Joshua deals with those who have threatened his life. He deals with those who have allowed child sacrifice to reign in the land. Joshua runs them through with a sword. He hangs them on the trees. This is also symbolic. The hanging of the bodies on the trees is a way for him to clearly show these five kings are cursed. Deuteronomy tells us cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. The Bible is filled, filled with irony, as now the bodies of these kings are thrown into the very place they had sought refuge earlier. What they thought would bring them safety ends up as their tomb. And to the day of this writing, to the day of the writing of these verses, they still lay there in this rock-sealed-up tomb. And it's at this point in the story the sun finally goes down on this extraordinary day that has so vividly illustrated for us the promises that God has made to their forefather Abraham. The iniquity of the Amorites is now complete and God's judgment is upon them. Four quick applications in this morning. First one is this, enemies are here. We face enemies. We are in a war. Paul tells us that war is not against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers who have aligned themselves against us. We make war with them. We make war with our own sin because if we do not make war with them and war with our sin, they will make war on us. Second application, we, to put on, we are to put on the armor of God. We need to know the truth, walk in holiness, meditate on the gospel, stand firm in the faith, be strong in the word, continually in prayer. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God, Fasten the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, put on readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, put on the armor of God, know the Bible, love the Bible, pray, be with the people of God, be strong in the faith, persevere. But ultimately, that leads to the third application, which is simply this. We must entrust ourselves to the Lord. We are certainly to be active and responsible, and yet God is sovereign. The text shows us that God fights for his people. Ultimately, our only chance is full reliance upon him and the recognition that we cannot do this in our own power. Ephesians 6 is clear. We must put on the armor, but every piece of the armor focuses in on the very weapons that God has given to us. We are utterly dependent upon God to act in accord with who he is and what he has promised. 
So wholly trust in him, wholly put yourself under his unchanging grace for victory comes not by getting him on our side, but rather like Rahab by us getting on his side. And then the last application is simply this, victory is coming. Brothers and sisters, do not fear, be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all of our enemies as he has done here. Stories like this have been written down for us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And they are to remind us in the spiritual battle that his past acts, his past evidences of grace are just a down payment of future grace. They are a guarantee that our enemies without and our enemies within will one day, it may not come until the last day, but they will one day be fully and finally dealt with. And how do we know this is true? How do we know that our biggest enemies will be dealt with? Sin within, powers without. The truth is we know this only because we have an even better mediator warrior. In this text, it says they have never seen anything like this. Where God listens to the voice of a man. But we have... We have heard of a man bearing the exact same name who is able to control nature. He will be on a boat and the winds and waves will pick up against him. He will say to them, be still. And they listen to him. Creation itself listens to him. Who is this man? They ask. Even the winds and waves obey him. We have heard of a man who stands before a grave with all of those around him saying, it's hopeless. This man is dead. There's nothing more that can be done. And the new Joshua turns to his father and says, I know that you always hear me. And then he speaks to a corpse. Lazarus come forth and he does. And sadly, the nations of the earth Instead of like Gibeon getting on his side, sadly, the nations of the earth rage against him and the kings and rulers of the earth take their stand against him. Even so much so that Israel herself, her leaders will take a stand against him. Yeah, this is exactly how he solves our sin problem. This is exactly how he takes on our enemies. He does so as the true king and Lord of righteousness who has never sinned. And yet at the cross, he becomes sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He bears in his own body the judgment due our eternal enemies of sins. And then he hands over to us and what the theologians call the great exchange, a righteousness that is not our own if we will only turn to him by faith. If you're here and you're not a Christian, here is what we hold out to you today. Turn to the Lord by faith and he will give you a righteousness that puts you at peace with God. If you have questions about that, there will be people here at the end who would love to talk with you. On that cross, as he is drowning in his own blood, he is praying the Psalms, he is praying for deliverance while pagan occupiers of the land stand around him and make fun of him, jeer at him, ridicule him, mock him. And in the middle of that, as he is bearing the weight of our judgment, the sun darkens and goes down at midday. The earth shakes. He deals with the curse by becoming a curse for us. Paul tells the churches of Galatia, he deals with the curse by becoming 
coming at curse for us because cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. The true king of righteousness becomes the king who is hung up on the tree. He does that not for his sins. He does that for our sins. And it looks as though he has been rejected. It looks as though he has been defeated by his enemies. It looks as though God does not hear him. And yet we are told in Hebrews, we know this, that in that moment, he cries with loud cries to the one who is able to save him from certain death. And we know that God hears him because on that first Easter morning, God heard him and he got up and walked out. Brothers and sisters, do not just marvel at the fact that the sun, that the sun stayed in the sky. Marvel that the, at the fact that the sun went down at midday because the Lord of creation bowed his head in death for you and for me. Don't just marvel at Joshua's total victory of putting dead kings in a tomb covered by a stone. Marvel that centuries later, a dead king got up and walked out of one of those tombs. There has certainly been no day like it before or since. Friends, we live in a world where we do not just have issues, we have enemies. And it's going to take more than therapeutic niceties to fix it. We are like the Gibeonites. We need a mediator, warrior, who can come quickly, who can come to save us. We need a man whose name means the Lord saves, and we have one. His name is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. And there's a day coming when once again at his voice, the eastern sky will split open. There will be a shout that is distinctly Galilean. And on that day, he will enact total victory as he will speak to the tombs the dead in Christ who have gone before us, he will speak to the tombs. And once again, God will listen to the voice of a man. And we're told in Revelation 6 that on that day, the exact same thing is going to happen. Our enemies and the kings of the earth will flee to the caves. And it says there, they will beg for the rocks to fall on them so that they will be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Paul tells the church in Corinth about that day, he says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Listen to this, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. In a broken world that we know all too well, the final enemy to be defeated will be death itself. Brothers and sisters, in a broken and fallen world, do we believe that? Or in one sense, are we just watching Hanna-Barbera cartoons and making ourselves feel better? Do we really believe that he will triumph over all his enemies and our enemies? Or are we just playing with vacation but Bible school flannel graphs? Do we really believe what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Rome, that soon the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet? Or are we just playing with Jesus' action figures? Father, we're thankful for your word. 
Father, I don't know the story of everybody who's in this room, but Father, in a room this big, we know that there are people who are hurting and there are people who feel even more acutely that they have enemies. Father, I pray that you would comfort them. We know Jesus is near the brokenhearted. Father, would you help us understand what this text is clearly teaching us, that you fight for your people. And Father, we certainly live in a world that will challenge that thought. So, Father, we believe. Would you please help any of our unbelief? Father, now as we turn our attention to the table, may we be reminded in a physical act of what you've done to guarantee for us this total victory. Change us, Father. We know that we are changed by beholding your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Through the singing, through the preaching, through the Lord's Supper, Father, would we behold him, and by doing so, Father, would we be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.